Okay, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, or not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Let's pray. God, uh, you are a God that fills heaven and earth, and we know that we cannot hide from you, Lord. And uh, we pray that you will just make our hearts uh, in such a way that we don't want to hide from you, Lord, but uh, expose every dark place uh, so that we can be washed white as snow and be useful workers to you, Lord, in this kingdom. In your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Please have a seat. Okay, so for lack of a better term, I want to do a little word association. uh, And please hold the groans. I'm going to read a few things here. And just whatever comes to your mind... um, yeah, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Bill and Monica. I mean, you, a few groans are okay. Bank bailouts and golden parachutes. We live in a world where celebrity is an excuse to sin without consequence, where a man's word in a contract is only as good as his whim, and a bank can destroy your life savings and still pay bonus checks to their executives. It's a world that has forgotten the meaning of accountability. So my examples are a little dated, but I was a teenager in the 90s. We were the Gen Xers, so the last of the Gen Xers, right at the tail end. It's like 1970s to the early 80s. That's Gen X. And in the 20 years since Bill and Monica had their famous tryst in the Oval Office, which is just down the street from where I work, um, a new generation called the Millennials, which you're all well aware, especially those of you who have teenagers, has taken our place. And if it's possible, they may be even less accountable than we were. So I recently read in a study on Vocative.com about a 2014 survey that was duplicating a survey that had been done in the 1970s of a population of about 55,000 people. And two very demographically similar populations, so Gen X versus the Millennials. It found two really alarming trends and one flat-out bizarre result. First, the study noted, and it was about the religious life of people. I guess that's an important point that you want to know. So religious life and religious habits. And first it found that attendance of any religious service of any kind has declined by half from my generation to the millennial generation. Second, there's a five-fold increase among millennials who never pray. But most strange about this entire thing is, for people with no religious affiliation at all, there's actually an increase in the belief that they would go to heaven when they die. So to be clear... For people who don't believe, that, or at least don't care if there's a God, don't pray for any number of reasons. The belief that there is a heaven somehow, and they are not just worthy, but are certainly going there, has increased. How do we get into this situation? Entitlement can't even begin to describe this. Delusional might. The fact is, a person does not just adopt a belief that they're owed a great reward, which they haven't earned, don't deserve, and have spent their entire life mocking. That, that belief is born out of a complete absence of accountability. So by my definition, and there's a number of definitions for accountability, but I think this one works. Accountability is being held to a standard by something or someone greater than you. Natural law suggests that in this life or the next, Everyone, and I mean everyone, is going to be held accountable for their actions in this life, if by nothing else than death itself. So I recently had a practical exercise in accountability. So if you're meeting me for the first time, um, I have a prized possession. And some of you who know me know what it is. (laughs) 
It's a car, a very silly car, which my, refer, my wife refers to as the clown shoe. So as Aaron told you, by uh, forces beyond my control, I have to sell this car. Uh, and it's like, kind of like selling one of my kids. So I listed it on eBay for what I thought was a fair price for me. And after about a month or so, with, with little or no interest, a force greater than myself held me accountable to a standard. That force? The free market. And the standard? The actual value of the car. <laughs> I, had, uh, I actually had one annoying eBayer give me a lecture about economics and, and the standard of the market uh, after I rejected his lowball offer. But that's accountability in its purest form. I held a wrong, a wrong belief, and the universe punished me for it. I uh, have since repented of that belief and actually sold that particular eBay there the car. So it turned, I, hated, I hated to admit that he was right. But he had, uh, he had my last name, though, so I feel like it's keeping it in the family. So I could just call him Uncle Mike. But the book of Acts is all about the church. That's you guys, us, uh, God's people. And I don't want to talk about all the sinners out there. Today, we're going to talk about the sinners in this room. God has a standard to which he holds the church. And if you're keeping notes, this is one you want to write down. God's church exists to serve and advance God's kingdom on this earth. Therefore, the mission of the church is God's standard for all of his people. And I think it's in two parts. First, God's standard is measured by God's law of love. And second, the Great Commission. So you remember Matthew 22, 37 through 38 is the law of love. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? And then there's the Great Commission. This is the work that we are supposed to be doing as people who have bowed the knee to Christ. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority on, earth, on, on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. That is it. That's the standard for God's people. So today I get to teach from Acts chapter 5. I am ready for it, Aaron. (laughs) But Acts isn't dealing with the ultimate questions of salvation. Instead, it's focused on the conduct of the members within the church. So I want to talk to you about why and how God keeps us accountable to the law of love and the Great Commission. Since the focus is on us, the church, I think two principles have to serve as a foundation, or the story of Acts chapter 5 is going to be taken out of context and completely misunderstood. And the first is this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. If you have bowed the knee to Christ and asked for forgiveness of your sins, you're forgiven and your destiny is secure. Okay? The resurrection is sure. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Okay. Now, this is going to blow your mind, but God expects people who have been delivered from hell to actually live as if they believe that there is a resurrection. Big surprise. So here's the second principle. The Lord disciplines the ones he loved and chastises every son whom he receives. So if you accept this free gift of salvation, you must also accept that he has work for you to do. And since your sin nature is at odds with this work, his discipline is necessary to transform us into useful workers. So some of you may be very familiar with God's discipline. I know that I am. (laughs) But others of you might not be so familiar and kind of still have this idea that God's sort of like a sweet old lady who's never going to really come down on you or get mad at you. But I don't think we should confuse 
God's patience in dealing with us as approval for our sinful choices. Jeremiah 23 says, Can a man hide himself so that I cannot see, declares the Lord. God's going to hold each one of us accountable. So Aaron taught last week from Acts chapter 4, and this is where we learn how God motivated his people to extreme acts of generosity. And this is what he did in order to establish his church. People were selling all that they had and meeting the needs of the others as they had need. And Aaron got mad at me because I made a Bernie Sanders joke, which I took out. <laughs> Bernie Sanders! No. No, he has no clue what these guys were doing. He wants to take your money and give it to everybody as they had need. So that's a completely different thing, right? I'm getting real political here, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a pro, so I can do that, right? <laughs> okay, sorry. It's easy to focus on the great deeds that these folks were doing, but what we need to see is why were they doing them. I think it's simple, because God put it on their hearts to do it. That simple. It wasn't about position. It wasn't about prestige. God gave them a mission to finance the early church and to finance the work of the apostles and meet the needs of the poor. So that's exactly what they did. You see, that's God's law of love. Acts 4.33 is a key, and you'll remember this from last week. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them all. Okay, That's the great commission. So God reaped a good harvest among those who faithfully obeyed the call to give in Acts chapter 4. Many were saved, and all who participated were blessed. So they obeyed the law of love to facilitate the Great Commission, and the result was lots of people were saved. And that's part of the joy of being accountable. If you trust in God and trust in his promises, you get to be part of the reward, and you get to be part of that harvest. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. Today, we're talking about God's expectations for accountability for the people in this room. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Okay? Here we're going to learn about a couple who thought they were making a plot to deceive the apostles. But in fact, what they were doing was making a plot to deceive God himself. So let's see how this works out for them. Let me take a little drink real quick before you get here. Sorry, I'm a little hoarse. Which I actually learned yesterday from Mary Ann is one of two service animals that you can take into Mary Ann Medical Center. A little horse or a dog. <laughs> Nobody's done it, though, so if, you, if you're the first to do it, I think that's a world record. All right. Verse 1. <laughs> but a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife knowledge, he kept back some, some of the proceeds for himself and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, stop. So here's the plot. They had some property. They were planning to sell this property, but they weren't going to bring all the money. Now, I think what's, being, what's missing from the story is uh, there was an expectation that they were going to bring everything, and so they, 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 wanted, to, they wanted people to think that they were bringing the full amount. Okay? So the goal here was to reap the adoration of the, con- of, of the congregation for doing this good work. You know, it's a very big, bold thing that they're doing. Okay, I want to make a distinction here. Was this sin unintended, or was it intentional? Intentional, Okay. So they weren't just tempted to sin, and then they just wandered into it, right? They made provision for their sin, and then they carried it out. So this was intentional sin. Okay, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back from yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. 
And fear came upon all who heard of it, and the young men wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So what do we have here? Sesame Street word of the day. Accountability. Can you imagine if Aaron had this tool in his toolkit? <laughs> so what, Aaron, what Peter simply did in the story was point out the error. It was the Holy Spirit who did the accountability, right? But this is why Aaron's got a pretty hard job here, because he's got to keep all of us scoundrels accountable. Pastors are charged with an even higher standard than the rest of us are. If you don't believe me, read G- James 3.1. You'll see what I'm talking about. But we could really help him out by holding one another accountable. And I think that's part of our mission here. So verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, those, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and all who heard of these things. So, bam, double accountability. God is nothing if not consistent. So I feel like now would be a great time to take him an offering for the building fund. <laughs> We'll have to wait till the youth group gets here with their shovels. Okay, but I know what you're thinking. Why did God just strike them dead? And follow-up question, am I next? And I think the simple answer is, Ananias, and, yeah, yes, no. Uh, maybe. It's always maybe. But the simple answer is, Ananias and Sapphira got what they deserved. It's wrong to look at these verses and think, God is cruel or vindictive. God is just a God of consistency. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He simply set a standard and held the standard. Ananias and Sapphira would have been familiar with the verse in Proverbs that says, there is a way that seems right to a man, and in the end is death. What's missing from that verse? A timeline. God never said when. Okay. What we should think when we hear these verses is, God is, good, is so good for not striking me dead the instant I sin, because clearly he's done it before. God's merciful and just beyond all imagination. Amen? Okay. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For if one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption, but one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. It would seem that this couple sowed to the flesh. And the scripture says to reap eternal life, you have to sow to the spirit. So if sowing to, to, uh, if sowing to the flesh reaps destruction, there should be no surprise when destruction results. So you've got to know that when we're saved, we don't suddenly lose our sin nature. We do, however, get the Holy Spirit, which makes us able to obey the commands of God. That's Romans 8, 3, and 4. Now this verse says, uh, great fear came upon the whole church. I think Luke couldn't be more understated if he tried. Of course, great fear fell upon the church. I mean, I've never been in a place where two people simultaneously drop dead in one day, but that would mess me up for a little while. And I don't know much about Ananias and Sapphira, because not much is said about them in the New Testament. But I think what we do know about this is they're church people, right? Just like us. And if God deals with his own like this, how much do the folks out there have to fear? Okay? So I want to ask you a question. Where does the sin lie in the story? Okay? We have to take Ananias and Sapphira in the context of the larger story, which starts in chapter 4. 
We're given the story there of Barnabas, a man who was nicknamed by the apostles the son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. And like these two, he sold a field and brought the money to the apostles. But since a distinction is being made, we have to assume that he brought all that he had intended to bring. So, Ananias and Sapphira are only different from Barnabas in the story in that they agreed to hold something back. But why would that be wrong? Okay? It's not wrong. God never asked any of us to bring all that we had and, and bring it to the church. Okay? He said, doesn't want you to donate all of your wealth. If you feel like doing that, good for you. But that's not what he's asked of you. Okay? I think the key question is what Peter asked Sapphira. How much did you sell the field for? question he already knew the answer to, and she lied about. Now, was the lie a sin? Yes, it was. But I don't think it's the sin that killed Sapphira and her husband. These two were held accountable because they made a pact to lie to the apostles. So why would committed members of the church do this evil? Okay, Look at their lives. Obviously, they tithed, which is an act of obedience to both the law of love and the Great Commission. Can I suggest to you that lack of accountability in small things led to great accountability once their sin had reached its fullness? Sin starts with temptation, but it doesn't become sin until you decide to act on it or desire it. Notice what I didn't say. Sin doesn't become sin when you act on it. It becomes sin when you desire it. Once you desire it, you have already sinned and you, re- and you need repentance. 1 John 3.15, not John 3.15, 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. A person who claims Christ's salvation should be quick to repent when they realize that they're in sin. Christ's sacrifice for our life should serve as a beacon to call us to repentance. Now, 1 John 3.16, its companion verse says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Do you see the difference? When we focus on our desires, death results. But when we focus on Christ's sacrifice, life results. I believe their sin was born from envy. They coveted status within the church that was being given to others, like, say, somebody who got a special nickname from the apostles. And no one realized or cared that they had this struggle until it matured to its fullness, which was a plot to lie to the apostles and steal from God. So once their sin stood between the faithful in God's church and the Great Commission, the Holy Spirit himself had to hold these people accountable. But back to the original question. Why did God strike them dead? How did he, why did he choose to hold his flock accountable in this way? Look back to verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 33, and I think that's the key here. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. When God send, swings that sickle to harvest the wheat, the, the chaff is also going to be cut down. You understand what I'm saying? Acts chapter 4 might as well be called element chapter 1 because it's where the church begins. And what is the work of the church? It's doing God's business. And what is God's business? To bring glory to God. And what does saving souls do? It brings glory to God. So you can therefore understand why God would necessarily want to extract members of his church that weren't 100% committed to the goal of saving souls let alone actively working against it. So in the military, we take an oath to defend our constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Which do you suppose Ananias and Sapphira were? Those domestic foes. 
So when he held them accountable, I think he did it to protect his church. But are you ready for a shock? I think Ananias and Sapphira are in heaven. There's no reason to doubt they would be. I mean, I'm a sinner, and I'm saved. So, in a way, if they're in heaven, killing them was probably the most merciful thing that he could have done. I mean, he could have let them endure in sin, but instead, they get to be in paradise. So who's really being held accountable here? Us. My hope is that all of you have bowed the knee to Christ and repented of your sins and know salvation. If you haven't, let's, let's talk about that after service, okay? But if you have, your future is secure. Your salvation is secure. You're adopted into God's kingdom. You have an eternal inheritance, and you are a co-heir with Christ in the resurrection. But as sure as that salvation is, so too is the fact that you're going to sin to the day you die. Hebrews 10 gives us absolute assurance of our faith. Read it today if you have some time. But it also provides a stern warning for us who are in the faith of the accountability that comes to people who love Christ. Now, it's, it's long, so I'm only going to take a couple of excerpts just to give you a taste, but I hope you'll seek this out after the service. Verse 26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, this is often misunderstood. What Paul is saying is, he's not saying that you can lose your salvation. In fact, just the opposite. What he's saying is, you've already had the ultimate sacrifice for your salvation, and Jesus Christ can't be sacrificed again for your sins. So what are you doing by going on sinning? Don't you realize what has been done to buy the salvation for you? Verse 30 will be very familiar to you. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Look, God doesn't want to work vengeance on his people. But he has to, sometimes, in order to perfect us. He's done it before. Ananias, Samson, David, the entire nation of Israel. Our sin sort of forces his hand. You know, if you've grown up in church, you've undoubtedly sung these words. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And when we sing that, we think of God like Santa Claus coming down the chimney to give us these gifts, you know, that come after salvation. Not like a SWAT team kicking the door in to hold his people accountable. But the fact is that God is going to draw us gently or force, forcefully to see his work done in our lives. Sometimes he's got to bust some heads. But we're all sinners. We are going to sin. And these verses are not talking about just sinning. They are talking about deliberately sinning. Ananias and Sapphira did not happen upon temptation and succumb to it by sinning. They deliberately went out of their way to sin. I've broken this down into four steps that I think we all go through when we are struggling with sin in our lives. And see if this doesn't resonate with you. They first saw something they desired. And for these two, it was position in the church. Second, they saw an opportunity, opportunity to get what they desired. Third, they planned in their hearts, and then, worse, they planned together to act on this sin. And finally, they followed through on it instead of repenting of this desire. So you might say to yourself, well, I serve at church, I never withhold my tithe, I'm generous, and I love God. And all those things may be true, but... When we make provision to sin in our lives, we are exactly like Ananias and Sapphira. 
and no sin goes unseen by God. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Unless we repent, all that remains for us is fearful expectation of judgment. Do you understand what I mean for, by making provision for sin? This would be like a person who struggles with infidelity, befriending old girlfriends on Facebook. Or a person who struggles to be generous with the resources that God gives him, yet whiles away hours on eBay looking at cars that he can't afford. Then there. How about this one? A person who sets up an idol in their life that to serve in the place of God. For a workaholic, it might be that job. For a romantic, it might be your girlfriend or your spouse. Anything that takes the place before God. The sin that we desire to commit sets up a barrier between us and God. And it's a breach that we frankly cannot cross on our own. Only the Holy Spirit can. And it starts with him convicting us that we're wrong. It moves us to repentance, which means to totally forsake and turn away from that sin. And it ends with us being reconciled to God, which is a very, very good thing. So remember that God is patient. But he's also just, and his, ju- and his patience won't last forever. Consider his justice and patience with regard to his people Israel. God sent his chosen people into exile for 70 years because they would not repent and they would not keep the Sabbath. But keep in mind, he gave them nearly 400 years prior to that to do so. And then he finally just had to deal with them. So God told the people of Israel through the prophets time and time again, if they would just repent, he would relent his hand and and he would not bring the destruction that was promised. But they wouldn't do it. Now think about Ananias and Sapphira. They got about one second Now, their sin was more than just lying. They were trying to live as liars within the congregation of the church. It gives you a little bit of perspective on how seriously God takes the gospel. Psalm 103, 8 through 10 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will his anger be forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. God doesn't utterly destroy us because he's merciful, and he is always merciful if we repent. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1.9. But you see why Aaron's job is so hard now. I think we often bring problems to him, looking for solutions, and are surprised when he points the finger back at us and says, Your problem is sin. Stop sinning. We get this idea that we should come to church to feel better about ourselves, a sort of weekly group therapy session. But simply coming to a church and agreeing with Aaron, what he preaches every week, has little to do with salvation, repentance, or growing the kingdom of God. And it certainly shouldn't make us feel better about ourselves. But what is true, though, is if we yield our lives to Christ, subordinate our will to his and do his work, that will bring glory to his kingdom. Then, in the, amid, in the midst of that obedience to Christ, we might fi- find we actually become more like Christ, and then we'll actually be better people, and not just feel like better people. Accountability is something that we should desire as Christians. If the goal is to be like Christ and to serve Christ, then truly we're already accountable to Christ. In my estimation, there are three ways that God brings us accountability. The first is, the Holy Spirit himself. The second is our Christian brothers and sisters. And the third, and most fearful, is God's discipline. The Holy Spirit 
leads us daily in a number of ways. And the first way is through our daily walk with the Holy Spirit. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So to obey God's word, you've got to know God's word. And that means spending time in it every single day. I mean, God has given us his voice in 66 chapters. If you want to hear it, that's where you're going to hear it. God uses that implanted word to prompt our hearts. It helps teach us when we're about to sin. Okay? And, he can, and that, that, that teaching, that leading, convicts us that we're about to go into wrong. Okay? Surely, surely, you who are Christians have had this experience. You might consider it that guilt or nagging feeling on your heart. It's kind of that feeling you get when you accidentally swear in front of your children, or maybe you're watching TV and something unexpected and graphic comes on, but, oh, no. That's kind of how the Holy Spirit can get a hold of us. I've personally felt that. It's that sort of sinking feeling of wrong. But, God, but the Holy Spirit does more than that. I mean, he will supernaturally lead us into righteousness. So using that prayer life, using that implanted word to, to tell us what's wrong so that we make good choices... But, but he goes beyond that. Everyone here knows Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. If you yield to the Holy Spirit, he is going to lead you to places where it is difficult to sin. For example, teaching your children... And obeying or and serving in church are both good things, right? Both of those things please God. But also, they present obstacles to sin. It's hard to commit adultery when your children and your pastor are in the same room with you. You see what I mean? Paths of righteousness. The Holy Spirit also goes to supernatural lengths at times to prevent us from sinning. And you hear these stories constantly, and it's just, they're just amazing. This would be like a guy who's going off to the, to the strip club, and the battery on his car dies, so he can't get there and sin. Or a more biblical example, like Joseph being thrown into prison for years to protect him from the predatory advances of Potiphar's wife. It seems like a pretty rough treatment, but it also kept, kept a, a man that God had big plans for from sinning. God also gives us other Christians, and this is one of the greatest blessings. These people in the room, in this room here, can be such a a method of accountability, and a way to lead you to righteousness. But they have to be following the Holy Spirit, too, in order to provide loving, non-judgmental support of one another. We should be judging ourselves, but supporting one another. And sometimes supporting one another means having those hard conversations that a person's not really willing to hear. As a minimum, this church, and all churches who love God and are obeying him, should have deacons and elders holding the congregation accountable. It's 1 Timothy 3. But Jude 10, or excuse me, Jude 20 through 23 is probably the most succinct um, guidance for, for us holding one another accountable. So keep this in your hip pocket. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord, Jesus Christ, that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fires. To show, other, to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. It's our duty to pull one another from that fire. So in, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there's this concept of the watchman. The watchman's the person who stands guard on the, on the wall in the city and seeks out danger and blows the trumpet. 
we should be watchmen for sin in others' lives so they can avoid this doom of judgment that awaits for those who are engaged in it. We need watchmen in this church. So this is where Christians put their money with their, where their mouth is in their walk with God. And I'm not talking about people who are pointing out sin. I'm talking about people who are having sin pointed out in their lives. Will you allow others to point out sin in your life so that you can be saved from God's wrath? Or will you reject your fellow Christians and sit in fearful expectation of God's judgment? Psalm 118.26 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If somebody is pointing you to righteousness and pointing out error in your life, you can rest assured who sent that person to do it because it wasn't them. It was the Holy Spirit, and you better listen. The last and most fearful way, if we refuse to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural links that he goes to, to to save us from ourselves, or even our Christian brothers, is God's discipline. All you got to do is think about Ananias and Sapphira. God's discipline is the last resort. When the gentle prompting of that spirit and the counsel of brothers fails to correct us, we leave him with no recourse. He's going to protect the mission of this church. Ananias and Sapphira could have repented of their sins that preceded the plot to deceive God and they wouldn't have been swept away. But God's not going to let the mission of this church and the accomplishment thereof be affected by our sinful choices. He's going to deal with us. So we have a choice today. Are we going to choose our will, or are we going to choose God's standard? Will we allow our brothers to be consumed, or are we going to pull them from the fire? The story of Ananias and Sapphira paints a fearful picture of what happens to people when we choose sin over God. But the fact remains, each one of us who has declared Jesus Christ as our Lord says that loving him, loving others, and putting the mission of this church first comes before our desires. But when we choose sin, as Hebrews 10 says, we trample underfoot the sacrifice of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So that's why we come to communion each week to remind ourselves of the sacrifice that God made when he sent his son to die on the cross and what it took to get us that salvation. And that should remind us of the importance of why holding one another accountable is so incredibly important so we can participate in that great harvest that God has. It's also why we give our tithes and offerings to show God the appreciation that he loves us enough to discipline us as if he's our children or because we're his children. You know, I don't discipline your kids. I discipline my kids because I love them, and I want to see that they can be all that I desire for them. Here's a verse I want you to consider, and I want you to think about your hearts, and, and perhaps today is not a day that you take communion. Okay? Perhaps today is a day that you give to God and you say, I've got something I need to deal with in my life. This is 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32. Whoever, whoever therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged But we are judged by the Lord. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God's discipline is what prevents us from that condemnation. So when it comes, say thank you.
You guys ready to play me off? I did the thing. I stood off to the side. (laughs) Come here, muscles. Get this out of here so I can pray. Thanks for letting me be here this morning. I appreciate it. Next time, maybe he'll give me a, a happier topic. No, it is a happy topic. So, uh, I'm not singing, so I'm going to stand over here. But let's pray. Father God, uh, we welcome your discipline, Lord. We welcome our brothers uh, who come in your name uh, to bring honor to you and to restore us to your glory, Lord. I personally thank you uh, for every person whom you've sent into my life to tell me that I'm wrong so that I can deal with uh, the things that were preventing me from bringing glory and honor to you, Lord. And I pray that for each one of these people here, Lord, we thank you for the harvest that you're reaping today, Lord, with the baptisms, and we are so honored to be part of that. Uh, I just give you honor, Lord. Uh, what, what great work you're doing here at Element, Lord, and I pray that it'll just be like a snowball rolling down a hill, getting bigger and bigger and bigger until everybody in this valley has heard the name of Jesus and has bowed the knee to you, Lord, so that your glory is is just extended further and further. You are holy, Lord. Cleanse us with your holy fire. In your holy name, Jesus. Amen.